Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so this is my final week of teach of doing in this class. Me actually up here talking. You guys take over next week, so that's kind of exciting for me. Um, it's actually easier to lecture than it is to pay attention to a whole bunch of talks and take notes. So if you if you ever think that it's like oh he's doing that because it's easy, it's actually hard. So why am I justifying my behavior to you? I don't know. The hell is all um, I kid. I kid because I love. I found out today, by the way, or yesterday, new research suggests that the moth ear evolved before the bat. Just saying, you know my moth and bat obsession? And all of like animal behavior Twitter is freaking out about this. Because so. we're all like, but that's my favorite example. And, uh-oh. So it may be the case, I'm gonna have to read the, the article, but it, it's, it's freaking me out. I'm a little bit weirded out by that. Um, however, I'm not weirded out by Gestalt psychology. Excellent segue. So today, the paper for this one, I don't know if we have to really even discuss it too much. It just gives you background on the stuff, but we, it might come up. Um, so there we go. The first thing is that there's not really a good translation for the word Gestalt. It's a German word. The Germans, I've mentioned many times, have words. Well, it happens a lot. There are you know, words in one language. There really isn't a translation for it. This is the case with this German word, Gestalt. It means, not parts, parts. It's, uh, the whole is more to some of its parts, kind of, sort of. Like, but it isn't quite that. But it's like that. Okay, so it's close enough for rock and roll. We'll say it's the whole is more than some of its parts. Um, it also sort of means shape, which makes some sense when you think about what the Gestaltists were interested in, or perhaps if you could say there are still are people that are into Gestalt psychology um, are interested in. And the other thing to note is the Germans are back. Um, this is the final thread, I think, of the importance of, of, of German academia, German philosophy in the history of psychology. Um, you got Wundt and those guys, uh, and then I think the companion piece is the Gestaltists. So, the origins of this, I mean, I think it's really the origins of cognitive psychology. I think if, if you want to say that, where does cognitive psychology come from? And of course, on Wednesday, or sorry, Thursday, we'll do the cognitive revolution. Um, where does cognitive psychology come from? It comes from Gestalt psychology, right? Because it's about representation. It's about things like, well, isomorphisms, and we'll get there. So. 
So basically what it has is a balance between Kant's view of these a priori cognitive categories, today we might maybe in, in evolutionary psychology we call them modules, and so it's got the rationalism, but it's also got a balance between rationalism and empiricism. So it's based on observation, it's based on experimentation, but it also says, look, there's inborn things, there's things that we have. In fact, this is a very modern way of looking at things, and it wouldn't surprise anybody. When you read this stuff, even the old stuff, you don't read it and go, oh, come on, how did anyone think that? That's nonsense. Whereas you do with some of the older stuff. You know, I don't know why. Is that gonna move, knock over my coffee? Um, why they put monitors and then also places to plug your laptop in and then the monitor blocks. Anyway, I complain a lot. So, the first person to use the term gestalt was a guy named Christian von Ehrenfels. Um, and he's talking about the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Remember Brentano, okay, German philosopher? He studied with him. So he studied with Brentano, and the influence of Brentano uh, is, is huge in the history of Gestalt psychology. So this is a quote of his. The radical view that the whole is psychologically, logically, epistemologically, and ontologically prior to its parts. A whole is not only more than the sum of its parts, it is entirely different from the sum of its parts. So let's break that down a little bit because it's, it's kind of wordy. So the whole, the thing, the object, the thing you're perceiving, the thing you're representing, whatever you want to say, Psychologically, logically, so, we're talking about logic, but psychologically, epistemologically, so looking at the theory of knowledge, where it comes from. And ontologically, prior to its parts. What that means is you are observing, you are, you are processing the chair before you process the characteristics that make up a chair. That's <clears throat> probably bullshit, but it, it's, it's a, it's a, it almost certainly is bullshit, right? I mean, we have, we know now how neural networks work and that we detect objects by looking at their characteristics, right? So we know that's silly, but this is a really, this is the, the radical view, is that we perceive the chair before the, 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 the characteristics of chairness. Right? It's certainly not true. But to say that we, I think a weaker view we would say today, which still fits with the Gestalt, View, is that we perceive the characteristics of the chair, but we also perceive the chair as a thing. Right? It's not just the sum of its parts. There's also a, a characteristic of quote chairness. Okay? Does that make sense? No. Okay. So we have well, you think 26 or 6? Red triangle. My famous red not famous, my, my favorite pretend neural network. How do we recognize a red triangle? So we go through that in class and we talk about how there are different angles and line orientations and all these things, and together, those all synapse together, uh, and a neural network eventually fires a, a red triangle cell. 
right? Okay. So there's the parts of the set of, of the red triangle that we're detecting. Yes, of course. But there's also a cell that says there's a red triangle. So we're perceiving that there's a triangle, but we're also perceiving the parts of the triangle. That's the weaker view, and I think that's the view that everybody would have today. The idea that we would perceive triangleness as separate from all those characteristics is silly. So separate from lines and corners. Yes. Yeah, we wouldn't do that. We, we can't. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So if you saw a triangle, you'd say that's a triangle, that's not just a set of lines. Yes. Yeah, well, but that's, I should write that down. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm use that. Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. I mean, this is a radical notion, um, and part of the problem with philosophy is that even epistemology, where you look at theory of mind and stuff, is that a lot of times you don't need evidence for things. Older stuff. Nowadays, it's much more common to talk about, like there is sort of experimental philosophy now. I know that sounds odd. I think we, I always thought we just called that science. But there is an area of, of philosophy that's about experimentation, right? Which I didn't know about. My daughter told me about this. She took a philosophy of psychology class in grad school which sounds intense to me, and like I wouldn't want to do it, and um, yeah. So there is this kind of stuff out there. So like, what he's, he's laying out a position, and it's, a, as he says, a radical position. Uh, Karl Strumpf was basically the first real gestalt psychologist. Uh, Ehrenfels is a philosopher. Strumpf is a psychologist. He also studies the print time. All right. I got this new coffee and it's just delicious. I, I just have to tell you, it's delicious. It's always a, you know, you order something on Amazon and you're not sure and then it arrives and it's better than you thought. That's, that's what happened with that coffee. Because I ordered it on Amazon. If, if, if I could, I'd order everything now. I, I wouldn't ever leave the house, actually. I'd just do this by Skype, and I would just order things on Amazon, and they just arrive. I subscribe to deodorant on Amazon. You ever do that? The subscribe and save? Guy comes with this great big box. Oh, boy, a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's mostly just household cleaning products. So early days, Max Wertheimer. Uh, let's hope this works. So Wertheimer works with a guy named Kudba. We've talked about him. Yes. Animated gifts have their uses other than, you know, well, the, the card the desk thing or whatever. But so this is the apparent motion study. He, he discovers the phi phenomenon. And that looks like it's moving, like, and it's of course not moving, right? There's no moving object there whatsoever. There's no moving object there whatsoever. What's happening is, and you know what's happening, I can tell you, but it seems like, I swear I can see it moving, like, a, like see it actually streaking across. And I know it isn't. It cannot be. Well, I know it isn't because I made the gift. I mean, 
It's just two dots flashing on and off. So, first thing people thought was, well, well, the criticism of this right away was, I bet it's just eye movement. You're moving your eyes. So you hold people's eyes steady. We can't really hold their eyes steady, but what you get them to do is stare straight ahead. And it still works when you're staring straight ahead and not even looking at it. Right? Because what, what people said is, oh, I see. So your, your eyes just dart back and forth. Well, don't do that. Have people stare at a point between the two things, and it still seems like there's motion. Right? It's really kind of bizarre. He also said this wasn't some kind of unconscious inference you're making. It just happens. And then one of the criticisms one can have of the Gestalt is this when they, when they get a phenomenon uh, like this, which is fascinating phenomenon. They'll say, um, that's just our mind working like that. That's <laughs> kind of a, it's kind of circular. So he worked with uh, Kurler and Wolfgang Kafka. Well, between, so it's just World War One and uh, the end of the Weimar Republic, um, he's at the Berlin uh, Psychological Institute with Kurler and Kurt, Kurt Levin, uh, or people will often say Lewin, but that's um, there was the Nazis take power in Germany in 1933, okay. and he's concerned about that. So he leaves, moves to New York, and founds the New School for Social Research, which is called the New School now, uh, which is a very well respected university, mostly graduate stuff for anthropology, uh, psychology, sociology, etc. Bertheimer was interested in something called reproductive, uh, sorry, productive thinking. And he, thought, he said reproductive thinking is like classical conditioning habits, things like that. And productive thinking um, is where you get new ideas, new breakthroughs. So instead of worrying about conditioning explanations, let's see if we can come up with another kind of explanation here. So that's, that's his, his big distinction between those two things. There's the habit stuff. He didn't say it was important, but it's like it gets into daily life. But productive thinking is when you come up with these new breakthroughs. This, this is an, he's an interesting guy, Kurt Um 
he was the movement's sort of major theoretician. Interesting things about him, in 1909 he marries Mira Klein. And she was a subject uh, in his dissertation. So she's one of his research subjects, and then he married her. You're not supposed to do that. In the space of one year in 1923, he divorced Klein, married Elizabeth uh, Angram, who recently finished her PhD, then divorced her and remarried Klein. He then re-divorced Klein in 1929 and remarried Angram the same year. This guy just had two women that he liked and he kept marrying them and divorced them. And they were apparently fine with it because they kept remarrying them. So there's something really odd here. <laughs> Do you want to get married? I will divorce you shortly. I spoke English really well and uh, read English really well, and he ended up uh, moving to the States and getting a job at Smith College. Uh, again, a lot of what happens here is these Gestaltists are in Germany. The rise of the Nazi movement makes people go, I've got to get the hell out of here. Right? So a lot of intellectuals, uh, not all of them, but a lot of intellectuals, first of all, a lot of them were, were Jews, so they're getting persecuted. You gotta understand that in 1936, laws are enacted in Germany stripping citizenship of, of Jewish people. Like they just, they, they, and, they uh, and saying that they could only shop in Jewish owned shops and that people who were not Jews could not shop at Jewish owned shops, so killing their economy. Uh, and um, that they couldn't work for the government, they couldn't work in professions such as the law or medicine. Um, they couldn't be academics. So Jews were getting fired from jobs, academic jobs. Uh, and so Jewish people would come from Germany. And these would be people of means. These would be people that had money. So they could do it. They could get a job in advance and get into the States, or, or, or mostly the States. The world um, stood by and did nothing. Uh, and that includes us in Canada. Uh, you know, yeah, when, when Albert Einstein wants to come, they go, yeah, sure, Albert Einstein. But when a, uh, a boat full of Jewish refugees who are just fleeing Hitler's Germany, um, before the Holocaust starts, before World War II, every country in the world, including Canada, just goes, nope, nope, no Jews, nope, because anti-Semitism is a pretty nasty thing. Um, so what's happening here is a lot of these learned people are seeing their colleagues getting fired. They, or they themselves are getting fired if they're Jewish, and they're like, I've got to get out of here. So a large number of them move to North America. Some move to places in Europe, but a lot of them are like, I gotta just get away from the whole continent of Europe, okay? This isn't good. And there was a real rise of fascism in Europe, not just in Germany. It was an ugly, ugly time. Leading to the most ugly thing that people have ever done, the Holocaust. So, he gets out, and he, has, he, he the nice thing is here, he can speak English well, so he gets a job at Smith College. Um, so he's the major theoretician. He starts take, taking his Gestalt ideas into places like developmental psychology. And he said there's another kind of learning besides productive and reproductive. There's ideational learning, and that's how we learn language, and that's the most important human kind of learning of all of them.
So he brings Gestalt psychology to the States along with a bunch of other people that come over. Kurt Levin, for example. Wertheimer. All these guys come over. But he's the first one. Um, when you talk about, I tend to think of Gestalt psychology as a perceptual, cognitive thing, right? I think most of us do. And his article in 1922 is, the, I believe, the first English language article on Gestalt psychology. And he's still a German. He's an intense looking guy. It somehow doesn't look like the kind of guy that divorces and marries the same woman three times, the same two women. And I what that would look like, but it doesn't seem like it'd be that. I don't know. All right. There's Wolf, Wolfgang Kurler. He did his PhD with Strumpf. We talked about him, which is interesting because that's how you say a Smurf in French. Strumpf. They Strumpf. Okay, you know about this guy. He's the guy with the chimps and problem solving, and they got one stick and another stick, and he has a banana sort of far away. They can't get to it with just the one stick. But if you take the two sticks and kind of push them together, they kind of fit together, you get the banana, and chimps get their hands. Insight learning, right? So he was the director of the Berlin Psychological Institute from 1922 to 35. And he considered this sort of the golden age of German psychology, of Gestalt psychology in Germany. Then, of course, the Nazis come to power. Um, and one of the things that you had to do in Germany was at the beginning. I know this is really, you probably know this stuff, so I'm going to tell you. But it was starting in the mid-1930s, in classrooms and universities, you would all be sitting here. And when I walk in the room, you all stand up and you do Heil Hitler. And then I do, I do it back. And in fact, people end up, that's how you say hello and goodbye in Germany from about it got to the point where that's just what people would say to each other. It wasn't hello and goodbye, it was Heil Hitler. You really feel gross saying that. Wow, right? And he's like, I'm not doing that. And that's one of those things where it's like, I'm not doing that and I gotta get out of here. I can't live here anymore. So he moves to the States because he won't give the Nazi salute. And he also wouldn't discriminate against Jewish students. Now, the word until 1936, the Nuremberg racial purity laws come in 1936. That's what I talked about. Before then, there were German students in classrooms. But people were told, profs were told, uh, mark them harder. Don't let them in your class. Fail them. And he wouldn't do that. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. So good on him.
So he leaves the state, leaves for, in 1935, uh, leaves for the states, ends up at Swarthmore, which is a really good liberal arts college, a really expensive good liberal arts college uh, in, I think, Pennsylvania. Where my super PhD supervisor did her undergrad degree. That's the sort of one. Ah, it becomes the president of the American Psychological Association in 1959. This is important because we'll talk on Thursday about the cognitive revolution. This shows that people are now respecting the idea of cognition, right? So, Sultan is the name of the chip with the two sticks. You can look it up. You can find pictures of, of Sultan actually putting these two sticks together. It's pretty great. So yeah, you know, you know the story. Combine the two sticks. So he called it insight learning. Um, and this is all about problem solving, right? And he's, he talked about the recognize the element of the problem to solve the problem. And then you come up with the insight the aha moment, you know, you do this sometimes, you're trying to solve a problem of some sort. I don't think a math problem, it could be. But it's more like when you're trying to figure out, how will I do this? And you sit there, and you mess around, and you've got all the elements of it, but you don't do steps. It just, oh, I know what I'll do. And there it is. Right, so if you've ever done something like, like a formal problem, I'm thinking of something like, well, you could think about something like doing geometry in grade 10. Right, because those are formal problems. Right, um, if you've ever done anything sort of, um, I don't know, trying to figure out how you're going to hang something on your wall. I don't know, and you don't have a stud finder. You think, what the hell am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? I got to find where the stud is. I need to find a stud. I know what I'll do. I'll tap the wall until I find. That's in fact how people used to do it before the stud finders. They used magnets to find uh, the uh, nails. So something like that. Or if you've ever had a laid a floor and you've got so many tiles, and you got to think, okay, how do I cut these things to make sure I use? I don't have a lot of waste. Things like that. Right. Or if you ever done like, um, well, think about doing stats problems. They're a great example. You've all done statistics questions. And sometimes you sit there and go, I don't know how to do this. Or if you've ever written a, written? Written a computer program. Ever done any coding? That's a great example. Where you're just sitting there going, I don't know what to do. How will I do this? And then one day it works. It's like when I was programming my computers to touch screen stuff back in 1990 with my birds. I just sat in front of a computer monitor for six months. I don't know how to do this. I should have told my advisor. I should have said, Sarah, I don't know how to do this. And she's like, you're smart. You'll figure it out. Oh, great. And then one day I went, oh. And then suddenly everything was fine. I am no computer scientist. So you got to see the whole field of the problem. You gotta sort of take a step back is what this is about, right? Okay, here's some Gestalt principles. You know these, so you've probably seen these in intro, right? Like proximity, so you, we, we, but, like if you're to describe this, I shouldn't say it. 
Describe this stimulus here. What would you say? The one on the right there, besides where it says similarity. Who here would say a row of unfilled dots, four unfilled dots, and then a row of four filled dots, and then a row of unfilled dots, and then a row of filled dots? Isn't that what you'd say? That's what I'd say. Or would you say columns alternating, unfilled, filled, unfilled, filled? He wouldn't say that. We group things that are similar together. We just do that. Right? Or this one here, proximity. How many? Okay. You call that three groups of dots, don't you? Because they're beside each other. This one's one of my favorites. You would, what would you describe that as? The one beside closure. What would you describe that as? Yeah, a necker cube, right? But it's not, is it? Like, you can see that it isn't. Because there's bits missing. You can almost see them, though, can't you? They're not there, but it looks like they're there. Connected, this is a great one. You just put little dots here, and then suddenly, those are all things. Just because I put lines there, we, we think that they're, we perceive them as being an object. Cool thing about this is cross-cultural. So it doesn't matter really where you're from, what language you're up speaking, whatever, you see that all the same way. So, like I said, I think of it as a perceptual cognitive thing. And we can talk about the behavioral environment that you're in versus the geographical environment. The behavioral environment, in fact, is what you are experiencing and how you behave. The geographical environment is actually what's really there. So there's a story, um, like an old, uh, not a fairy tale, but it's like a tale, called the Lake of Constance story, and it's about this person who um, rides their horse across this snowy plain and comes up to this manor. Okay, and it stays for the night. And the next morning, it turns out that the way that he ended up there, the person says, oh, so you rode your horse across the lake. It's like, lake? That's not a lake. It's a snow-covered plain. It's like, no, it's a snow-covered, frozen lake. It doesn't matter that it's a lake, geographically. Because behaviorally, and so perceptually, cognitively, it looks like a plane. And the thing is, the person said, oh, I never would have ridden my horse across it if I thought it was a lake, because I'd be afraid I'd fall through the ice. But when I thought it was a plane, I had no problem doing that, and I rode my horse uh, just like I would across. Uh, just, just open land. Now, here is an important characteristic of Gestalt psychology. That's the idea of, of psychophysical isomorphisms. Okay, you know what psychophysical means? Now, isomorphism is just a representation of the world 
that using a mathematical transformation, you can reconstruct the world. Okay? So it's like a map. If I have a map, and I know the scale of the map, I can reconstruct the world, right? So when you look at a map and you say, not that many people look at maps anymore, they just have apps that do that. But back in the old days, when you were driving somewhere, you had to have a road atlas or a map with you, and you'd look and you'd say, okay, where are we now? Oh, the road's, we just came out of whatever town. You find that town. Oh, and the road's turning, we're right here. And if you actually said you know the scale, the scale that was printed on the map, you could measure and say, oh, this is how far it is to get to a certain distance, a certain point. So the idea then is that representation of the world is a psychophysical isomorphism of the world. It needn't be an image. It could be. But it needn't be an image or something. It could be something like a map, which through a very simple mathematical trans uh, transformation, you just multiply the number there times whatever the scale is, and you get the actual scale of the world. Okay? So that's an important characteristic, probably the important characteristic of the gestaltist view of how the mind works. And it's one, in fact, that I think sounds reasonable. When you think about, if you've taken memory, I you know some of you have taken memory with me, the, the, the class when we talk about models of memory and these rather complicated mathematical models, but they actually those models allow you to generate data that look like reality. Right? So it's that kind of thing. So things are isomorphisms of the real world. They're like maps. Now that, when you talk about a cognitive map, knowing where you are in, 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 in say, three-dimensional or perhaps two-dimensional space, that's one thing. But you give a map-like representation, map-like meaning it's an isomorphism, for time for number, for chairness. Okay, does that make sense? Because it's funny, thinking, it, it's not usually talked about, we don't usually say, oh, that's how things work, but that really is probably how things work. psychology has a huge impact um, on all of psychology. Ash works with Max Wertheimer and you know about Ash and the conf uh, conformity studies? The Ash line experiment, right? Classic. I'm surprised no one's picked it as their classic paper, right? One of the Ash line experiments. Everybody knows the Ash line experiment, right? If you don't, just say if you don't know it, I can explain it in 30 seconds. You don't know. Okay, good. Then I'll explain it. Okay. You all just sit there going, you know the Ash line experiment? 
Okay, good. I'm glad you said you don't know it because it's easy to explain. So, as with most great social psychology experiments, there is a confederate who's lying. I love those kind of experiments. They're fun. They're iffy ethically, but this one isn't. Classic. So, you have three lines. Oops, that should, be, that should be the same thickness. And you're asked, which line is longer? And it's pretty clear that it's the one on the right. But the confederate, before you can say anything, says one in the middle. more than one confederate, so you got a couple now, maybe three, in fact, I think the, 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 the best is three. They all, they, they know, they're on the payroll, right? So they all go with the same one all the time, and it's always wrong. You know what you start doing? You start going, wait for them, and then you say, okay, yeah, they want to, they don't know what they said. You conform. Classic. Oh, by the way, it's not that your perceptions have changed at all. Because people are, when they're debriefed afterwards, and told, ha, 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 fine joke. We were screwing with you. Um, they, they've been asked by, by Ash, so did your perceptual system, like, did you actually, no, I didn't see them. I thought these people were crazy, but I didn't want to rock the boat, so I just went wrong along with them. It's like when you're at a sporting event. You ever go to a sporting event, and you don't care which team wins? Like, you just don't care. It's like, oh, I'm going to go see a hockey game. And you go see the St. Louis Blues play the Winnipeg Jets, which is an example from my life. <laughs> in St. Louis. And I'm thinking, okay, great, well, maybe I'll check the Canadian team. And the next thing you know, I'm cheering for the St. Louis Blues because 18,000 people in this building are cheering for the St. Louis Blues. We have the Winnipeg Jets' wide seats. They didn't come on the trip. So that's why we got in our hotel. It's like, I'm cheering for the St. Louis Blues? Okay. I saw the play the Washington Capitals. Did the same thing. Two years in a row, the conference was in St. Louis. The Go Blues! What? I sang the U.S. national anthem. I'm an American. I mean, I stood up, so respectful and all that stuff. It's like, you know, what am I doing? That's weird. And it's funny, you'll often see this when you'll see, like, say, American or European hockey players. Um, Building out the Canadian national anthem. Like they're singing. He's American, why is he doing that? And I remember an announcer saying, that happens a lot, because they hear that song all the time at home, and they just sing it. And I've done that. Pretty weird, right? So this is, you could form. Afterwards, you like, you think, why was this thing the Star-Spangled Banner? That was odd. Okay, whatever, no big deal. So that's a great experiment. And it's even better, you're even more likely to perform if you know, the person is introduced as a uh, graduate student rather than undergraduate. If the person is, uh, this is an engineering student, you don't have to measure things a lot. Things like that. You're more likely to perform. Some people don't, by the way. Some people are like, no, no, no. And we all think we're that guy, don't we? No, you're not. Most of us are not that person. What we are is the person going, okay, yeah, and the home of the... It's the one in the middle! 
Okay, Milgram's a little worse. This one's kind of funny in a way, and afterwards, if you were told it, you'd say, that's creepy, but interesting. Um, Milgram is like, I'm going to meet, you know, okay, anybody know the Milgram experiment? Put your hand, you know the Milgram experiment? Okay, you know what, no? Okay, the Milgram experiment is, you had a teacher and a learner. The, okay, and you're learning a list of um, constant health constant trigrams, actually, fair associates. So, back, when I say back, and you say, gag. You're supposed to remember these things. But I have you hooked up to a shock generator. The air quotes are because it is a shock Well, it actually is, but it's, it's not even in shocks. And every time you do one wrong, I'm supposed to push the shock button. And I'm supposed to turn it up to more voltage, or current, I guess, not voltage. Every time you get one wrong. And 60-odd percent of people go all the way up to XXX danger. Dude, that's a little scary. Like, that's a lot scary. Chris? People are getting shocked. Are they in a different room? Yeah, uh, first they're in a different room. It's a series of experiments. First they're in a different room, they're hacking. <coughs> ah! My favorite one is it makes you so uncomfortable seeing it. I would show it to you, but I, listening to uncomfortable laughter is the worst thing in the world. I, I hate that. But what we saw at Detroit Site, has anybody actually seen these videos? Yeah? So, yeah. And you should. When the guy yells out, I had a heart condition, please stop. And that's when the whole class goes, eh. it's not really funny, is it? The guy does it anyway. You're like, ooh, that's not good. Nobody thought at first, he said, you know what's going to be? It's going to be like 1% of people. Oh, it's everybody. Or 60, is it 63%? So first it's in another room. Next, it's like, well, how about if we have the person right in front of you? You're a little less likely to do it. Most people still go all the way. You know why they're going all the way? Because Stanley Milgram's standing behind you going, you must continue. You know how now we have that thing about informed consent and you're free to withdraw at any time? Eh, not that. You know why we have those rules? Because of this. You must continue. And he would probably say, there will be no permanent tissue damage. <laughs> oh, okay. And then he thought, well, what we'll do is we'll give people a shock at first. The teacher person will give them a shock first. Maybe that'll change everything. It does change a little bit. Still, most people go on. So this is scary. Because this shows us how regular people can become concentration camp guards. Right? Yeah, please. For, like, this stall, this would the Stanford prison I think it does, but I would also say that you know now about the Stanford Prison Experiment that it was mostly uh, fake. Yeah, yeah. It's the, I guess the best word. Um, it, the, you know, ginned up. Like it was really not. People were acting a lot more in that than, you know, and they were encouraged to act too. I mean, it's funny that for years we thought. Oh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. This is this huge thing, and it's the extension of Milgram. 
Also, it's horribly unethical. And yet, was it unethical to do? Yeah, sure, of course. You know what's even more unethical? Making up data. Um, so that's probably what happened there. But yeah, I, mean, I think it, it falls totally, in, it, it's, it's the grandchild, I guess, of Ash's line experiment. I don't know how they ever got approval of any sort from anyone because we already knew the answer that what should happen, according to Milgram. The thing with Milgram is he should have stopped. He should have said, oh boy, this is creepy and bad, and I should stop doing these experiments, because this isn't nice. I'm messing with people's heads. And then Milgram said, well, you know, I've asked the subjects after the experiment, and they said they were happy that they found this out about themselves. It's like, you didn't sign up to gain insight about a weird, dark part of your personality. You signed up to be the subject of an experiment. <coughs> right? That's why it's informed consent. That's why you have to tell people what's going to happen. You have to tell them the whole experiment. You just tell them, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. Right? Yeah, Chris. So just talk, right? Zimbardo called off the experiment after a week, and then he had the rest of the data? No, the whole thing was basically a crock, looks like. If you look at the data now, when you, you talk to the subjects, and you look at some, like, stuff was uncovered a couple years ago. Uh, people were acting, basically. It was acting. On both teams? Oh, yeah. It was an act. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an act. It looks pretty clear now that it was an act, which is an amazing thing. Because for the longest time, it was held up as this, and it still is in some intro books. Um, Oh, look at this, this is this. I mean, again, it would be horrible if it were true. People will play roles, but they are play, in this case, they were play acting. Yeah. And Zimbardo knew it, it looks like. Right? So that's kind of, it's good, actually, in some respects, because I like to think that it wasn't those people in the experiment weren't really horribly affected right? if they were play acting. Oops, do I have? What's going on here? It's not connected? Maybe not, eh? Um, Musafar Sharif basically takes the ideas of the Gestaltists and people like Ash and Milgram and invents modern social, experimental social psychology. Um, the Robbers Cave study. Uh, is another one that may not really be true. Uh, it turns out. And you know about that one? Who, anybody know about that study? Yeah, explain. Kind of like Lord of the Flies. Yes. Because the idea is like Lord of the Flies. So they get kids, and they're actually at a summer camp kind of place. And the kids are divided up, but they don't know that there's another team. And then they're told there's limited resources of some sort. And then the kids immediately sort of fight over things. It's Lord of the Flies. Except, um, and I literally read about this two days ago, it probably, the kids knew way more than Sharif let on. So what happens here is in-group, out-group, so now you start seeing your group is more important, and you find characteristics of yourself that in your group, even though they're very small or really non-existent characteristics of yourself, and you 
exactly. Right? Except um, that may not have happened. So again, there's new data that just came out, and I, I honestly saw this on, where did I see it? Was it Twitter? Academic Twitter has, has value. Soda's just complaining about hockey and politics. <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe on Twitter I saw that. Um, so the Robbers Cave study may not be nearly as big a deal as it was made out to be. Is there a reboot that group? Yeah, sure. And that's where he starts, and I think like, and this is Paul telling me this, that, so it's probably not true, that, joke, that, that he really invents modern experimental social psychology. And Paul says that, Paul knows that something more than I do, I'll, I'll take his word. And people don't think about this too much anymore, like he's not given the credit for inventing modern social psychology, he should be. Yeah, so it's a Lord of the Flies type situation. And it's too bad because it looks like it was exaggerated and it probably didn't have to be. And the exaggeration here, I don't think it's as much as like Zimbardo where there's play out. I think it's that the kids knew more in advance than people thought. And then they sort of figured, what are the problems with experiments? The main characteristics, right? I'm sure you've all learned about the main characteristics. People try to figure out what the experiment's about because people are trying to be nice. It's horrible that people are so nice and they try, they try to help you. It's like, oh, I, I know what this experiment's about. And we've all been subjects in experiments, right? Everybody here at Intro site filled out some experiment. Didn't you, everyone hidden in this room, try to figure out what the experiment was about? Every single one. Yeah. You're sitting there going, okay, what do they want me to do? What are they trying to figure out? Okay. If you're lucky, you do a good job covering that up and people can't figure it out. Or they figure out the wrong thing. Right? If you have a really good plausible backstory that isn't really deceptive, it's fine. A student of mine uh, a few years ago for his honors thesis, what a few, 2006, and that's 13 years old. Holy jumping. God. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I guess he's in his 30s now and he's got a family. It's weird when your students start seeing their Facebook pictures and they have families and they bought houses. It's weird, just saying. Um, as you think, yeah, he's 22. No, he's not, he's 35. So, um, my student Rob Ryan did a really cool experiment where, in fact, he uh, was had people playing video games. And he was either being cooperative with them, playing, uh, I think it was Doom, uh, or really being nasty. So he trash talked them. And he was good at Doom. He practiced enough that he could beat not in a pro game kind of way, but just anybody playing. So he's in another room with an Xbox Live headset on, and they're playing, and he's just mocking them when he beat them. Or saying, oh, good shot, things like that, when, they, when you get, oh, keep, keep trying, you're doing well. And of course, trying to find out if people got, if it affected their performance, if it affected their mood, these kind of things. People couldn't figure out what that experiment was about. They thought it was a video game playing, like, you know, it was really about the effect their aggression levels. So no, no surprise, video games don't actually make you violent. Even when you're playing violent video games and you're told you're a loser. And even when they came into the, the experiment, like he was a jerk to them when they came in. Sign this. You have trouble reading? Like <laughs> it's like he was a and he's, he's the nicest guy in the world too, so the acting he had to do that was pretty impressive. 
They probably couldn't figure that one out. On the other hand, usually it doesn't matter the kind of stuff I tend to do. A lot of people do with me, like, well, first of all, no one's going to, the chickadees aren't going to matter. They don't know. But even stuff I've had uh, students do, like memory experiments with me, we tell them it's a memory experiment. We're going to give you a list of words, we're going to have you recall them. We're going to kind of like it. Just kind of though, right? Just enough to be fun. Yeah, yeah. I don't do it for fun. My favorite one is the distractor task. And you get people to take distractor tasks ease up seriously by telling them you're interested in their knowledge of something. We're interested in your knowledge of uh, world capitals, geography. So list as many capitals and countries as you could visit. Think it's, a, it's it's intelligence related, right? So they, and then you know when they're done, you just throw them away. But you, I would lie if I would not say that I look at them and go, <laughs> list of countries. They look right things like South America, and you go, wow, it's not a country, dude. Okay, some conclusions about Gestaltists. They they resisted the behaviorist type. You've got to look at someone like Curler, and he didn't like structuralism. He didn't like functionalism. He didn't. He, he's like, I'm going to look at the whole situation, right? Gestalt. They kept thinking about thinking alive, and I, I think that's a very clever term phrase, Dave. Why? Thank you, Dave. And they helped usher in the cognitive revolution, which is what we're going to end up talking about uh, for my last lecture in this class. And that's on Thursday. We're going to talk about the cognitive revolution. And if it weren't for the behavior, for the Gestaltists, I don't know. We, would we have a cognitive revolution? Yeah. It would have taken longer. So more power to these people. Questions about this stuff or comments? Like I said, read that paper. I don't think we have to discuss it. It's basically just background. And it gives you an idea of how these people think or thought. All right? Okay, I guess we're done.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to match them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>